So last week we got a question texted in that asked why other denominations like the Ethiopian Orthodox Tiwahedo Church has 81 books in the Bible, but we only have 66. Well, let's take a look. As Christians, we believe that all scripture is inspired by God, meaning that the Holy Spirit breathed into it and that they are authoritative for teaching and rebuking. The 66 books of the Bible are broken down into two categories, the Old and the New Testament. The last book written in the Old Testament is Malachi, around 400 BC, so there's about a 400-year gap between the Old and the New Testaments. Now, during this time, Jewish people recorded history and events that were happening, and these books became known as the Apocrypha, which literally means hidden books. Now, they're fine as a historical piece, and even Martin Luther said that it's good to read them, but he acknowledged that they're not on the same level as Scripture simply because they're not inspired the same way that the Old and New Testament were inspired. The Holy Spirit lifted divine inspiration for this time. Now, Jewish people at the time widely accepted this because God stopped sending prophets and the word of the Lord came from the prophets. So, when Jewish leaders in the first century referred to the Hebrew Bible, now called the Old Testament, it stopped at Malachi and did not include the Apocrypha. Some Christians, such as Jerome, recognized the Apocrypha to be something less than Scripture when he noted that the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew, but the Apocrypha was written so late that it was only written in Greek. Now, Luther, whenever he translated the Bible, he did include it in his Bible, but he also recognized it not to be divinely inspired. The Roman Catholics officially first recognized the Apocrypha at the Council of Trent in 1545, but also noted that it's simply an addition to Scripture. It's not on the same level. So, are they bad to read? No. Go home and read it if you want, and you'll actually hear some really cool stories, such as uh, the Maccabees and where Hanukkah came from. But it seems that they're definitely not divinely inspired as the rest of scripture, which is why many Bibles today do not have them. Now there's a small snippet on what could be probably an entire hour, but that's enough today for our historical minute. Mike's so impressive when he does those. <laughs> And the fact that he gets it down to a minute or two is just extraordinary to me. Um, we're in Matthew. We've been going through this book for the last several weeks now, uh, months now, or whatever it might be. We're in chapter 13, uh, beginning in verse 24. And as we've gone along this journey, Matthew does different things in his, in his gospel. He kind of sets the case for Christ and he makes it. And then once he sets that case or makes the case that Jesus is the Messiah, he goes into some of Jesus' teachings. He goes into the parables. He gives this sense of amazing people through the healings that he does, amazing people through the teaching. And yet all the while there's this, there's this undercurrent that says, I'm, I'm the guy. I, I'm the Messiah. John the Baptist prophesied about me. And as that became more and more of a prevalent teaching, you notice the division in his audience grew. It was primarily from the Pharisees and the, and, and the Sadducees and the scribes, but, but it grew even amongst the people. And we'll see some of that today as we go through some of his parables and, and, and after. What's an interesting thing, though, it, I think we can best understand this uh, hesitance to embrace the, in Christ. When you think of just, there's two barriers, really, that are caused when you think about somebody coming back to the church, I think, after a while, or maybe more appropriately coming to Christ. There's this idea that Jesus is Savior 
And that's a big deal for people. We live in a culture that thinks that we can do it all by ourselves, and yet life's a brutal and beautiful teacher in many ways. And in all of us experience those times in life where we just don't have the answers, and we're just simply not smart enough, and we're scared, and we're nervous about the future because it's at those times that we realize we control nothing. We're just kind of going through, we're doing the best we can, but there's times in our life that just bring us to our knees and say, we need something more. And it's those times that help us realize, I think everybody in our world realize that, that we need a savior. We, we need somebody to save us from this mess that we've got ourselves in. We need a savior to save us from the, this, this wreck of a body that is now, is now one that we call our own. We need a savior to forgive us from some of the past to allow us to move forward. But as Jesus goes on and he explains more and more, it's not just about salvation. It's also about him being Lord of our life. And we got into some of those last few weeks about how Jesus says, you know, guys, it's all or nothing. It's me first. I've got to be the most important thing in your life. Do you get it? Nothing else is good enough. And the reality is, you look at our lives, and I go back to this question of my buddy that was asked. He says, they asked him, are you going to be saved? He says, I don't know. I hope I've been good enough, you know. And the reality is that none of us have been good enough. And so this quest for Jesus isn't about doing, scaling the, the top of huge mountains and overcoming huge obstacles. It's just, it's holding on to Jesus. It's receiving his forgiveness. It's trying to follow him with your life, saying, God, you know better than me. God, I want to follow you because I know it's safer. I know it's better, even though I don't always understand it, even though sometimes I disagree, I know it's the right way to go. And so it's not just a savior. Everybody wants a savior. He also asks to be Lord of our life. And that's where the complexity comes, and that's where the frustration comes, and that's where Jesus starts to meet division. The Pharisees are a curious case. They were looking forward toward the Messiah. Jesus just wasn't meeting up to what they expected. He was different. He was doing things that weren't abiding by the law that they had created. And as they continued to be frustrated in how he proceeded, because of their lack of understanding, because of the lack of seeing, this tension amongst them grew and it became more and more bitter. We even read last week how some of them were looking to kill him. And I think we can understand some of that bitterness. I mean, we live in a very polarized culture in America today, and it's not just politics. It's, it's just about anything. It's either you're a Detroit Lions fan or you're nothing, right? Except that everybody feels pretty good about that because we never win. <laughs> um, but the reality is it's not just in politics, it's at work. It's either you agree with me or you don't, you know? And if you don't agree with you, you must be wrong or you must be evil. It's back to that green carpet, red carpet church, right? Where I like the red carpet and the fact that you like green, there must be something wrong with you. You must be going through a hard time. There must be something evil about you that you would like the red carpet. Isn't Satan from hell and isn't that red? I mean, we, we create all these, uh, kind of all these kind of scenarios to vilify the other people who don't agree with us. And we do that in mass in our culture, and you see that happening also in the Gospels. So we pick up in verse 24 of chapter 13, and he's again sharing a parable. He started sharing parables when he started in meeting increasing opposition, increasing division to his call to follow. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore, bore grain, the weeds also appeared. And the servants of the master of the house came to him and said, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds in it? 
And he said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go out and gather them? But he said, no, lest in the gathering of the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at that time, I will tell, you the, tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and then bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. I came across a cool thing, if I can find it anywhere here. Oh, I just thought this was interesting because I, I did not know this, so I'm going to share it with you. And it says the weeds are probably called darnel, a poisonous plant related to wheat that was virtually indistinguishable indistinguishable from it until the ears form. To sow darnel among wheat as an act of revenge was punishable in Roman law, which suggests that the parable depicts a real-life situation like some of the other parables he used. A light infestation of darnel could be tackled by careful weeding, but mistakes would easily be made. In the case of heavy infestation, the stronger roots of the darnel would be tangled with those of the wheat, making selective weeding impossible. I thought that was interesting because it's a parable, and he'll get into the explanation in just a bit. But it's a a parable about a world, about those who cling to him, about those who don't, about how he calls those that cling to him good, and how those that don't cling to him evil, and how they get mixed in together and making the good, or being a good, um, being part of the wheat, uh, this good plant, uh, difficult and, and hard. But he goes into a couple more parables, and I want to share with them before we get into his meaning, because they go along with this one. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air can make nests in in his branches. Again, prophetic of kingdom growth there. The kingdom of heaven, again, is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was leaven. All three parables talk about this idea that God's kingdom cannot be stopped, right? In the first parable, they talk about these, 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 uh, the good seeds, right, that were going to turn into wheat. And even though the enemy attacked them, they didn't stop the wheat from growing. They were going to grow irregardless of what of what the evil seeds did, right? Of what, the, of, what the, of what the weeds did to the soil. They can complicate that growth. They can make it harder for it to grow. But it's already set in, this, in, the, in, in motion that these good seeds will go to full fruition. You look at these other two parables and the same thing, even though it's the smallest of seeds and just a, I guess to clarify, it's not the smallest seed, but it was one of the smallest seeds that they knew at that time. And he was probably next to a sunflower seed, and so he, or a, a plant. And so he was saying, even though this is some of the smallest of the seeds, it grows into this amazing plant. So even though it's more difficult for the seed to grow into something bigger, it's already kind of foretold. It, it's baked into the bread, which just leads us to the next one, right? Even though it starts in a way that doesn't seem like it's powerful or big, it has its effect. And so you just kind of think of the disciples at this point. They've seen him do extraordinary things. They knew his claim to be Messiah. There was a, a kind of a tension in the midst of his disciples, certainly in the midst of the people, of wanting Jesus to kind of assert himself as the Messiah. If you're the Messiah, say so. Let's take over, man. Let's, let's show Rome who's boss. That's what they were looking for. They were looking for an earthly king, one who would dominate and, and take away all the oppression that they were facing, one that would reset Israel as one of the prime nations in the world to which every, every, every other nation would bow. They wanted vindication. They wanted what he had promised. And even the disciples on the way uh, to Jerusalem on that, final, on that final time when he'd be turned over to the high priest, 
There was infighting amongst the disciples who would get to sit at his right and left hand. They'd bought into this idea that his kingdom was now. He was going to rule now. They were, they were going to experience some of the blessings now. They had missed the suffering servant role. They had missed that he came for more than just setting up a kingdom. And so they were frustrated because he would heal some people and they'd be amazed. He'd give a talk and they'd be astonished. But he wasn't making any moves. They wouldn't seem like they were gathering that many disciples around him. And then when they did, Jesus would talk about the, the bread from heaven and, and that you should eat the bread. And all of a sudden, some of those people fled. You'll see that in John. It seemed like whatever Jesus did, he tried to make sure that he would say some hard stuff that would make a segment of the people walk away. What was he doing? Why was he trying to do that? And so each of these just says to his disciples, don't worry even though it seems insignificant now, I promise you, it will reach its fulfillment. I promise you, one day, the whole world will know. And then he goes into explaining the parable of the weeds, which is just a little bit uh, different. Well, let me go over the prophecies and parables. He, he then links the parables to a fulfillment of prophecy in verse 34. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. And this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundations of the world. And then he left the crowds and he went into the house and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. <laughs> this is a pretty powerful explanation. This is shared just with his disciples. Anything that was confusing prior, he just lays out here. The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. That's him. He calls himself the son of man all the time. The field in the world is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom, those who believe in me, those who will follow me. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are the angels. And just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will be it be at the close of the age. The Son of Man, again, that's him, and then he says very clearly, will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all that causes sin and all lawbreakers. You think about all the things that cause sin today. These would be non-people things. These would be drugs. This would be pornography. This would be idols. Things that cause people, trip them up, cause them to sin in this world of ours. Things that are implicitly bad or evil. They will be swept away. And then all the lawbreakers, and he's not talking about speeding, although I'm sure that's part of it. Uh, He's talking about breaking his law, his commands, a resistance to follow him. And he's saying all these people will be swept up and thrown into the fiery furnace. And that place will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That fiery furnace is a depiction of hell. The weeping and gnashing of teeth is a depiction of misery and regret. I'm a big Billy Joel fan, but he sings a song, right? The good die young, right? And... Um, and there's a line, and of course I can't remember it right now. Um, oh, I'd rather laugh with the sinners than die with the saints, right? But there's no laughing in hell. There's weeping. There's a gnashing of teeth, which is a form of regret. I can't believe I didn't listen. We give you a sense of that. I can't believe I rejected it. People were telling me, I think of my buddy in high school, man, or my best friend from high school that we've had all these talks with, if he goes to hell, man, he's going to be doing the same thing. I should have listened to Mike, you know? We had all those talks. Why didn't I just 
Why didn't I just follow? Why didn't I just humble myself? Why did I refuse to believe? Then the righteous, though, will shine like the sun in the kingdom of our Father. And Jesus says, he who has ears, let him hear. I think it's easy once you have the whole of the scripture before you to see how this plays out, right? But the disciples were still on the front end of this. And, and while they said they understood, there was probably a lot of things that were a little bit confusing in the midst of this. I want you to notice something, too. As he goes through this, he says, the weeds are the son of the evil one. In other words, the weeds, these harmful things in the midst of the field, are people. They're not inanimate objects so much as they are people. The, the good seed, again, is people. If you think about all the evil that has come upon the world, very seldom, if ever, is it an inanimate object. There's a lot of things that are somewhat neutral that can be used evilly. The internet is neutral, right? Can it be used for evil? Yeah. Who uses it for evil? E evil people use it for evil. Idols in and of themselves are just a, a rock that's shiny or something like that, right? Maybe it has form. Who makes that rock evil? People who worship it, follow it. Drugs, I'm just confused about. I don't know why you would create certain things that are drugs, but, but the reality is they're just plants or they're just chemicals until somebody decides to concoct them together in a way that's evil, that causes them to lose perspective or control or whatever it is. And so when he's talking about weeds and he's talking about weed or the good, or the good seeds and the bad seeds, he's talking about the states of man's heart. When, when God comes again to judge the world, he's judging what's in here. And it's not where you start, it's where you finish that matters, right? And so when God comes again, and for, just so you know, that's probably within 75 years of everybody here, right? Because we're all going to die at some point, if not earlier, if he comes in a spectacular way. But our end times is coming soon enough, right? It's not hundreds and hundreds of years away. All of us are going to pass in the next, I'll say 80 years. Some of you look pretty young. Um, oh, I'll go 90 years with my daughter there. Okay. <laughs> Reality, within 100 years, right? And so it does matter where our hearts are. It's not something that you put off over and over and over again. I don't know what my buddy's thinking. We've had all these talks, and he knows that there's an element of truth in what I'm sharing. He even says, I'd follow right now, but I don't want to give up control. I like calling the shots, and I love the honesty, right? When's he going to yield control? When's he going to humble himself? There's a time where it's just too late. The other thing I want to share with you here is um, the evil ones, the weeds, they flourish only for a time. Do you get that? They're sown for a purpose. They have this time of, or this heyday, so to speak, right, as they're intermixing themselves with the wheat. But their day will come. There's an eternity of heaven for those who believe, and there's an eternity of weeping and gnashing of teeth for those that don't. And so when you think about heaven and hell, it should be what you're playing for on this earth. It actually matters more than anything else that you do. Any other decision that you would possibly make, your eternity is where you're going to spend the rest of forever. This earth is but that in time. And so he'll go on and explain how important this is in the next few parables, but, but, but that's a huge thing for us to get. And then let me see. Um, this lawlessness that he talks about, um, one of the, the names for the Antichrist is uh, worker of lawlessness, okay? Um, and this lawlessness is a reference, again, always against God's law. It, it, the more you get rid of his truth, what happens? 
the more people start stepping away from it, from following it. The more sin makes us stupid. I love that phrase because if you see situations in our, in our society today where people have forsaken God's law, you see them making the dumbest of mistakes. You may see them making the stupidest of decisions. And you get into places where every decision that you're looking at is sinful. I'll give you an example. I hope he doesn't listen to this. My buddy in high school again, right? So he was married and his wife cheated on him. And so he moved out of the house. Um, and he waited just a little bit of time because he was trying to reconcile. And then he decided, well, I'm going I'm to start dating. This is just too hard. I'm too lonely. And we get the loneliness, right? You're just rejected by somebody. You're, you're looking to them instead of to God to make you feel better. So it's wrong. It's sinful. It's adultery still because you're still married. But he decides to pursue, go against God's law and pursue a relationship. It goes well, and, and he's, he's liking the girl, and he introduces this, this girlfriend to his kids, right? Even though he's still married, and his wife flips out. Why? You know, because even though she had never, they're still married. And, and then he's just sharing with me this, this conversation. He goes, I was there talking to my girlfriend's brother about my wife. He said, it felt wrong. Why? Life is simple, guys, if you follow him. Life gets really weird and complicated when you don't. And then he was saying, his wife kind of opened up to offer a chance at reconciliation. He goes, man, I don't know if I can cheat on my girlfriend to save the relationship with my wife. It sounds really stupid when you say it like that, right? But can you get when we don't follow the simplicity of God's law, the things that are better for us, that are good for us, then every decision you get to a point where you're looking at is convoluted and and murky and difficult because everything you're looking at is kind of a sinful choice. And so I'm here trying to counsel them going, well, what's the less sinful thing here? Uh, what would be the best way to go forward, buddy? And, and then I'm just finally saying, you know what? God says don't do this. <laughs> and he goes, I know, but I'm already in the midst of it. And then the conversation goes from there. So God calls us to follow. And then he goes into the parable of the hidden treasure. Again, we said, this is what we should be playing for in life. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man had found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. During this time, if you, uh, there was just a reality. We didn't have safe deposit box at the banks and stuff like that. There wasn't safe places to put your valuables. And so if you had a lot of valuable things, especially during times of war, and you're worried about soldiers coming and looting the place, or if you were feared that the enemy was going to over run you, or if you're just afraid that your neighbor was looking at something, what people would do is they find a spot in their field to bury it. And only they would know where it was, right? And so they bury the stuff. Now, as you can imagine, there were times where the enemies did overrun the field, and the people would be killed or whatever, and the treasure's still on the ground. Or, or a, a, a case where um, soldiers did come and try to loot and maybe even kill the family, and they were there. Maybe they went off to where uh, million and one different reasons why somebody might die. And if they died and nobody else knew where the treasure was, there it would be, hidden treasure. And so it was not uncommon where somebody would stumble upon one of these treasures and it was finders keepers. That was the law of the land. Unless you were working for the guy on whose land you found it, then he could claim that you were an agent of his who uncovered the treasure and it would be the owner's land. So it was important for this guy upon finding this treasure, and it was his right, finders keepers, right, for him to buy the land so that nobody would question his ownership of it. So this guy was looking at this treasure, and he realized it was immense, and he decided to sell everything in order to get it. He gave up his home. He gave up 
any assets that he had. He gave up everything so that he could buy this field so that he could have everything. It was that important, that immense, that much of a priority. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in the search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all he had and bought it. This is a similar story, but the guy who just bought all the treasure could sell off part of his treasure and still be doing great, right? This guy found a pearl that was of that kind of value, still sold everything so that he could have it. Can't sell part of a pearl. He didn't want to sell the pearl because it was of great value. It puts into perspective then, well, it, yeah, I'll, I'll say this. It puts into perspective then how important the kingdom needs to be to us. Is it worth everything that you have to find eternity in heaven? And the answer, if you can, it, the rational answer, if you consider all that you get in heaven, is absolutely. So, what is it that encumbers that or slows that idea down? Why do we get so caught up in the ins and outs of life? Why do we deceive ourselves in thinking we, we have something greater here? Because you, you meet to people all the time or talk to people all the time that says, well, when push comes to shove and I have to make a decision in my life, I'm going to choose this relationship over God's truth. Or I'm going to choose this truth over God's truth. Or I'm going to pursue something that I want to do because it's fun now. And I'm going to give up everything. Jesus, again, everybody wants to be saved, but Jesus says, I need to be the most important thing. I need you to follow me. I need you to trust me. That's what belief is. Trust is a hard word in our culture today, isn't it? It's hard to trust even the people in our own family, but, but much less our neighbor or much less a politician. God says, I want you to trust me. Trust that I've got your good in mind. Trust that I've got you. Trust that my laws are for your benefit and not for your harm. Trust me, and you'll have everything. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw the bad away. So it will be at the close of the age. Angels again will come and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into a fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Revelation, it gives us a picture of the end place of hell, the, of a lake of fire, right? That um, the Antichrist and the beast and unbelievers will be thrown into for all of eternity. It gives you a sense then of this imagery of a fiery furnace. <laughs> it doesn't seem like much of an option. It's not like there's an in-between that says, well, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. It's just heavenly bliss, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things, he asked them. They said yes. And they probably did get the, the big pieces of it, absolutely. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained in the kingdom of heaven, they could be considered scribes because they've been trained in the kingdom of heaven, is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. In other words, what is new and what is old are both valuable. Both the Old and New Testament are both valuable. But it's the new that allows us to interpret the old right? When you think of the sacrificial system, God gave that to, man, uh, to the um, Jewish people for a period of time. He said, if you do this, you can be forgiven. You can have your relationship righted with me. As a community of Israel, you can do it on the Day of Atonement. Uh, give, give this sacrifice. It will make you clean before me. I will hold nothing against you. And that relationship was important. That forgiveness was important to be in right relationship with God. 
But it didn't take very long to see that that was inadequate. There's no way I can sacrifice enough things with all the sin I do. There's no way that, that we can keep coming back to the well over and over for all the evil that we've done. We've sinned too much, and yet God's promise is that every time you come, I'll forgive. When Jesus came, he says, I'm the Messiah. I'm the perfect sacrifice. When I die and rise again, you'll have forgiveness forever that is complete. No more sacrificial system. So it allows us to see from the new, from the new perspective, right, of Jesus being that perfect sacrifice, that the old is no longer necessary in that case, that it's been fulfilled in Christ. Both of them are important. You don't throw away the Old Testament. I hear people all the time, well, I'm a New Testament person. What? It's all the same thing, right? It, it, the New ex- expounds, it fulfills the Old, but all of it's true. God hasn't taken away any of it. And so he's saying here, that you're like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. In fact, some of the stuff of the New Testament you can only understand because the Old gives you a reference point. And in the stuff in the Old Testament that's been fulfilled, you can only understand that if you cling to Christ and understand the new. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, and they said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? It's an interesting thing. This is the last recorded synagogue that Jesus was uh, said to teach at. This is also where the division in this storyline increases, where the opposition becomes increasingly bitter. So he does these teachings. Everybody's astonished. and says, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works as he healed all sorts of people? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not this mother, his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Are not all of his sisters with us? <laughs> where did these, this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to him, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. It's an interesting thing. I was thinking, trying to come up with a parallel. I don't know if any of you guys went to high school with somebody famous or somebody that really made it. And and most of the time, some of the time, if it's the star quarterback and he went on to play in some place, you're like, oh yeah, that makes sense. I had a buddy who played at NAU that was as good as a god in sports in my high school, right? But, um, but you always appreciate that and you kind of get that because you saw it coming. But if you were a classmate of Bill Gates, did you see that coming? That he'd be one of the wealthiest people in the world? All the girls in his high school are kicking themselves right now. What was I thinking? You know, but you look back at those guys and you think, man, how did that happen? I knew him back in the day. I mean, sure, he was smart, but where did all that stuff come from? How did he, how did he, what breaks did he get? How in the world did he make it there? Not, it's not like you de-emphasize any of it. You're just, you're bewildered, right? You're like, how in the world did that happen to this guy? And then you get a sense of, of growing up in a family and then saying you're the Messiah. I, I'm, I'm continually amazed that my parents are here and that they worship here. I remember when I first moved here, they did not join our church. I mean, just coincidentally, because they still saw me as the kid that left the house when I was 18, right? And I went to college, and I was not the same guy that came back even many years later. And they asked me, so we join your church? I said, only if I could be your pastor, because you need a pastor. It took them four or five years before they joined the church. Why? Because they couldn't see me as a pastor. But do you get how important that is? My sister, she comes here from time to time. It's hard for her, my guess is, when I start preaching different things or when I start sharing different things. 
because she knew me back when I was a kid. And if she hasn't, like my parents had to get to, see me now as a pastor, I get why she doesn't come more often. My family and my kids, they see everything. Sometimes I preach sermons and my wife's like, how does it feel to preach on something you have no idea about? Like patience or something like that, right? I'm like, it's important for them to know the truth. You know? But, the, but the reality is, it's hard when you know everything about somebody, sometimes to hear. And if all of a sudden I'm not just preaching and healing people, which would blow you away, but now I'm saying I'm the Messiah, you're like, I don't know. He's saying he's the Messiah. He's saying that we should give up everything and follow him. He's saying that he's the only way to heaven. I don't know. And there was a great divide in the people that were listening to him. Some embraced it and found life. Some struggled, as you can imagine. You might struggle. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. And so he has this... Um, sort of mystical idea about John the Baptist and reincarnation and all these different things. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, uh, because John had been saying to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. In fact, when uh, Herod married Herodias and took away from Philip, it so angered the dad of, of Herodias, which I have here someplace, but I can't find, um, that he ended up going to war. They ended up going to war with, with Herod because he had done this to his daughter. Not to mention his brother who was a little bit upset about the whole issue as well. And so he's complaining about, John's saying to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. You see this respect even amongst the Pharisees when they were trying to question Jesus. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the, the company and pleased Herod. And so he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she sought it for her, to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. It's an interesting thing, Herod. He went and heard John a lot when he was in prison. He didn't like what he was saying. He was making him look bad. In fact, um, Josephus, who wrote a lot of the history um, of, of, of that time, he was saying that um, Herod viewed what John was doing as sedition, you know, trying to get him out of, of power. And you can see, that, and so in so many ways, if that's true, this was a repeated kind of call to him that you were doing wrong by marrying your brother's wife. In fact, in the Greek, it's a continuous verse, which, which lends to that. And so if he was repeatedly calling Herod out, repeatedly making him look bad, and understand he was, he was over the Jews who had a very rigid law on, on divorce, right? On marriage, on what was okay and what was not okay. Herod clearly had cost, crossed the line, and John was getting everybody upset about it. He needed to put John in prison. He wanted to kill him, but he was intrigued by what he was saying, curious about what he was saying. He would go over and over to listen to John and just leave kind of befuddled or, or, or convicted or whatever. 
But he also knew that John was expected, or was viewed by everybody as a prophet. And it was political suicide then to kill the one that was calling him on his sin. He was already unpopular because they had put him in prison. To do that would be horrible. And yet he used this probably to some chagrin, right? Or some, some frustration. He utilized this as a way to get rid of John the Baptist. Herodias probably didn't care, right? And so when she went through this ruse, they were able to get John killed. When they told Jesus, though, it says when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from that boat, from there in that boat, to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. So Jesus, hearing now that the opposition to his message was now getting heightened, even John the Baptist, his forerunner, was killed, that people's anger was getting to the place where that was accepted, he withdrew to grieve, to, to mourn, but also just to be out of sight, out of mind for a period of time. And yet, even when he was trying to do that, the crowds follow him. And I love this line, and he had compassion on them. You guys ever have a, a brutally hard day, and you walk in the house, and your kids haven't talked to you all day, and your wife haven't talked to you all day, and they run up to you, and you got nothing left. But they need to spend time with you, and they need to share with you, and they need to connect with you because you've been gone all day. Anybody ever have an experience with someone like that once? Jesus showed compassion. It's the right thing. It's what we all should do always. He showed compassion and put their needs and just sat down and spent time with them. In this case, healed a bunch of people, hundreds and hundreds of people. And he put his own tiredness in the back burner. He, he put his own, like, frazzled part of him, right, in the back burner. And he just said, I'm going to focus on you right now. And he made them feel special. And they were special in his sight. It's an extraordinary, I always, in ministry or in, in family or, I, I just think there's something to be said for the compassion that Jesus regularly showed on people. He would always put their needs before his own. And, and there's something to, to follow about that. There's something that is so impressive about that to me. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the day is now over. Send the crowds away and go to the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. So, again, just to give you a sense of this, the disciples are looking for Jesus to set up an earthly kingdom. They get confused sometimes because he talks about suffering and he talks about this other kingdom in heaven and they get all that, but they think it's going to happen now. The crowds are also feeding them this kind of energy. When's he going to become king? When's he going to make his move? When's he going to do it? And they're starting to get caught up in that a little bit. And so Jesus is also going to give them another sense of who he is. They need not go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to them, we only have five loaves and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Have you ever been in a situation where you say, that's impossible, there's no way we can do it? We had a building campaign a little bit back where we wanted to build something, but it was going to be $1.7 million of underground work before we could lay a brick. We would not raise that much, right? We raised 700000 There was no way possible for us to go forward and build anything. And then God provided a way. The disciples were looking at the dollars in the bank. They were looking at what was possible. They were thinking about the immense cost that would be required to feed all these people. They were thinking there's no way we can even find food for all these people. There's not enough vendors out here. The, the, the local cities are too small they, for all these different people. And he said, bring them here to me. And then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. 
And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. And then he broke the loaves and he gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over. And those who were about 5,000 men besides women and children. That last piece is just an indication that it was more than 5,000, right? Some uh, commentators believe up to 15,000 or more people, if you figure in all the people that were there. And some, there's some people, there's a strain of, of teaching out there that says, well, people brought their own food, you know, and they just kind of brought it out because he guilted them into it. I mean, they had it with them. But that would go against this whole idea of what he's trying to accomplish here. It also goes against some of the miracles that have happened in Scripture. It, if you view it that former way, you diminish what God could do. For example, when God rained down manna from heaven, he fed the nation of Israel for 40 years every single morning. Well, not Sundays. He gathered up twice on Saturday. But, but he fed them for 40 years in the desert. Everything's possible for God. Elisha, who was a prophet, fed over 100 people, 100 men, on 20 loaves of bread because God blessed the food and it multiplied and everybody had enough. The people of Israel believed that one of the messianic prophecies was that when the Messiah came, he would bring back manna. And so this was a messianic statement to all those that were there. He was saying, I am he. I am the Messiah. But after this, people went nuts. He had just showed them to be the Messiah. He had just fed them. He needed to become king. The disciples started getting caught up in this, so again, Jesus expands who he is. Immediately, he made his disciples get in the boat, and before him, oh, shoot, it's 635. All right, we'll go on that next week. All right, so I'm going to pray now. Nice transition that was, I know. Um, let me pray. God, we love you so much. You know, as we dig into the scriptures, you share hard things with us. We're a selfish people. We like to do things our way. There's sins that we've excused, that we've continued to do. We struggle to follow you in every area of our life, and we know your call to us is to follow and to trust and to believe. Father, I guess we're saint and sinner both. We, we long to do that. We long to trust you in all the areas of our life. We long to follow you and be blessed by your word, blessed by your promises. Yet so often we just get confused along the way. So we pray that you would send your spirit and power to us tonight and that you would make simple life through your truths, that you give us strength to trust your promises and your truths and to follow you, and that you would remind us that we're forgiven because of Jesus, that you remind us that we don't have to keep paying for the past sins, for the stupid things that we've done, but that we are clean and whole before you now, again, because of Jesus. That you make new, that you give us new beginnings, that you let us start again. And it doesn't mean that we don't have to struggle with some of the past stuff. Sins have consequences. And for some of us, we're still dealing with some of the consequences of the past. And so with this forgiveness and with this strength, help us deal with those consequences with a new perspective of one that isn't condemning, but one that is looking to try to make the best. Father, whenever we follow you, promise goodness. And so we pray, give us strength tonight. And we pray this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen.